Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Carol Ireton-Jones is one of the best when it comes to calculations for nutrition needs. After all, she developed the equation all dietitians use around the globe. She's a clinical nutrition expert with decades of nutrition care experience for a variety of patients in hospital and outpatient settings. She actually developed the Ireton-Jones equations that RDs and MDs use in clinical settings for estimating energy requirements in hospitalized patients. At her successful practice headquartered in Dallas, she manages patients with GI disorders, including IBS and IBD, and serves individuals IV and tube feed nutrition formulas. As you can probably tell, we're going to tackle some topics we don't often talk about here on the show, but are extraordinarily important. Carol is a force, and it's an honor to have her here today. Carol, welcome. Thank you so much. It is so great to have you here. We have tremendous respect for your work. Ashley, who's on our team, who's brilliant, thinks you are a genius. So (laughs) we are so honored to have you here today. Thank you. So I'm going to start with your work. You are a medical nutrition therapy specialist. So what does that entail exactly? Well, so actually, I kind of made that up because I'm a registered dietitian, but we do so many things. I mean, registered dietitians can work in food service. They can work in industry. They can work in uh, food development. They can be policymakers. They can do social media. They can work in the hospital. And then, so I kind of thought, okay, my thing with being a nutrition person is I'm a nutrition therapy specialist. So I, I tend to work with patients who have particularly more of a medical need. So I love the gastrointestinal tract. Although I did have a cardiologist tell me that if you don't have a good heart, you don't need the gastrointestinal tract. And I guess he's right. Hearts may have just a little bit higher level, but really the GI tract is my thing. So I think that's why I made it up to use myself. It's a nutrition therapy specialist. So I really kind of zone in on how nutrition can participate in your medical care. So you mentioned the GI tract. What gut or GI challenges, if you will, are you seeing a lot of with your patients? I My, my interest has been in the GI tract from a very long time since I, I did work in nutrition support in the hospital. And so usually that was due to some kind of illness or injury that would cause some kind of malabsorption. So maybe there'd be a surgical problem. But in outpatient, I would say, gosh, so much of it is irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And then I also see patients with another eye, inflammatory bowel disease. I'm seeing more gastroparesis as well. And then some patients with celiac disease. I'd love to see more patients with celiac disease because the treatment for celiac disease is to avoid gluten. And that sounds pretty easy, I guess. So that's why they get given a piece of paper that said, avoid these, and then you'll be well. But actually, there's a little bit more to it. And so I I would like to see more 
patients, celiac patients, so that I could talk to them about the nuances of the, the gluten-free diet. Because there's a few things that just that piece of paper doesn't tell you. <laughs> but those are the main things I see. So what are some of the nuances of the gluten-free diet for someone who has celiac? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is you may look and it may say gluten-free, but, and it should be correct. That should be correct. But if you're, say, for example, at a restaurant and they have some gluten-free items on there, you're so excited because you can eat here. Except have they carefully separated your gluten-free, let's say, pizza crust from the other pizza crusts? Or did they make everything on the same table and now there's some cross-contamination? So that's one of them. Another one is some of my, well, I would say I get this on 95% of the patients that I actually get to see or clients because they're not really inpatients anymore. So I know I'm on a gluten-free diet because I have celiac disease. So how much gluten can I have? <laughs> and I think that's an excellent question because the answer is, well, really none. You might get some in a mistake, like mentioning at a restaurant, but really we want you to have none because the gluten uh, causes damage to the villi in your intestine. So there's not, a, there's not an amount that's good for you. So I, I, that's what I don't think is inherent in those pieces of paper that you get handed to you. So you mentioned IBS, IBD, and then gastroparesis. Could you talk about each of those three? So I'll separate gastroparesis out because it's a little different than the other two because gastro means it's the stomach. And so basically there are the levels of the stomach that just doesn't empty correctly. So sometimes it's a lower stage, so it empties fairly well, but not perfectly, all the way to it's just gastroparesis, which means the stomach just does not empty anymore at all. And so instead of food going from the stomach into the small intestine, it just stays in the stomach and that causes nausea and vomiting and of course malnutrition because after a while you just don't eat anymore because things aren't going down. Now, this can also be treated in in a couple of ways. Early on, there's some medications that can be tried, but also I just bypass the stomach and using a, a feeding tube that can go into the small intestine so the person can get adequate nutrition that way. And then I'm working with a, a doctor here in Dallas who places gastric stimulators to help get the stomach to actually activate again and have that movement, which would get the food to go from the stomach back into the small intestine. So that's gastroparesis. There's diet interventions, and then it can be all the way to helping with a feeding tube. So that's and pretty that's, severe. Someone would know if they have that. That's Oh, yes, they yeah. would. Yeah. And it, it could progress to that too. So, yeah. And then the other two get mixed up all the time. Inflammatory bowel disease or IBD really encompasses Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is just in the colon. And Crohn's disease is one of those that can be from mouth to anus. And it causes inflammatory patches in 
throughout the GI tract. It can be in the small intestine, large intestine. As I said, it can be other places as well. And then, so diet becomes important just to treat the symptoms. I would love to tell you that, oh, here's diet. We have very specific diet things that we can do, changes we can make for patients with IBD. We're working on that, but there is no clear determination of this food is bad for IBD and this food is good for IBD. We do know that fresh fruits and vegetables tend to be great, except if you're having a flare, you might need to have softer fruits and vegetables. So it, it, it really needs a dietitian to help with that. And I do think that the patients are seeking out dietitians to help with that as well. Now, ulcerative colitis, it, this, the, it works, it is affecting the colon, so colitis. And again, we just try to find foods that don't cause symptoms or foods that can help manage symptoms. And, and if we could do that, that's great. Sometimes both of these require surgery. So they require a really good specialist GI doc. And if you have a really good specialist GI doc, I bet you have somebody who this doctor is probably referring to a dietitian. I work with a few here in Dallas and they, I love them because they just are, are, you must go see this dietitian. You must see this one because she knows what she's talking about. And I, I think that's really helpful because again, lots of nutrition things. You probably don't want to see me for diabetes, although I could help you. Cardiovascular disease, I could help you, but that's, I'm just not keeping up with the latest meds on each of those, but boy, you come to me for GI, I know the meds, I know what people are talking about. And then my favorite, that sounds bad, but my favorite is irritable bowel syndrome. Now, I had one patient that came to see me. He called to see me and he said, my doctor told me I needed to see you. I can't remember what I have. It's something like grumpy guts or something. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think it's irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, that's it. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad diagnosis because it causes, it's associated with symptoms of gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation. So that can really affect a person's quality of life. So to be called irritable bowel syndrome that I told, I always say, can we change the eye to something more important than irritable bowel syndrome? But diet um, can make a big difference in IBS. That's one of them that I could say there's some pretty clear cut data for that. Yeah. So let's talk about nutrition approach with regards to IBS. Because when you say bloating and constipation, I, I, I think how there are a lot of people out there that suffer from that and they don't even they don't know what it is maybe they assume this is just the way it is and so how i'm curious one how many people do you think suffer from ibs and don't know it and then two talk about nutrition approaches so there is there they've been collecting some data on this throughout the world and in fact ibs is actually not just here in the U.S., but throughout the world. But in the U.S., we think there's somewhere around 15% of the population that has IBS. And I just heard a statistic yesterday, so I hope I'm going to get this right, that one in four GI visits is for IBS. So it's, it can, it's quite a challenge. But 
if the GI, two things with it, because you're right. I mean, constipation can happen. And constipation does not have to be IBS. There, there could be other reasons for it. Diarrhea could happen. It doesn't have to be IBS. There could be other reasons for it. So that's a, even you are hitting it right, the nail right on the head. When somebody has these challenges, I just have a lot of gas. I don't know what's going on. I have constipation, whatever. They need to see their GI doc or even their PCP, but their GI doc, because they need a workup. IBS now is kind of popular, if you will. So you see it a lot of places in online. And so self-diagnosis is rampant and everything. I always Google to see what's wrong with me too. So I understand. You go to Dr. Google, especially during COVID, you know, go to Dr. Google. That's right. That's right. I mean, if it's me, my dog, my cat, I just Google and see what to do. But so, so IBS comes up, it's very much a, a trending Googled question and diagnosis. So that's why I think these people need to go see a GI doc and really get, get a workup. And here's the deal. They get a colonoscopy. They may get an endoscopy. They'll be tested for celiac disease. And so then they come back to me and they say, there's nothing wrong with me. But I still have constipation, diarrhea, whatever it may be, a mix. It may be more of one than another. I'm not able to go. I, I, my job is suffering because right as we sit down to a meeting, I've got to go, whatever it may be. And my doctor says I have irritable bowel syndrome. It just And so I always, and I, the dietitians that I work with and those that I uh, try to train in this, I, it just... This is where this validation is. That is a true diagnosis. So it's a functional GI disorder, which means that the x-rays don't show anything, that the biopsy didn't show anything. It's just, but we know if you've had these symptoms ongoing for three months and you have them daily, there's this Rome 4 criteria that the doctors use and they diagnose it with IBS. And so for someone suffering and who wants to take an approach with nutrition, can we segue to FODMAPs? Because FODMAPs can be problematic. A lot of people, maybe they see a doctor, maybe they don't, but they're bloated, they're constipated. They have a lot of the symptoms and are like, you know what, I'm just going to try this out first. So talk about nutrition and FODMAPs and how they potentially can, how they're potentially problematic for those suffering from IBS. Yeah, well... FODMAPs are fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And I always try to say that two or three times to my patients when so that I can sound a little smart. But really, it is fiber, some fruits, the, the lactose in milk, and then these polyols, which are sugar alcohols. But doesn't it sound better to say those big words? I mean, so it, it does. And I, I'm used to just saying FODMAPs. And, I, yeah. and I'm curious, what are the, so you touched on the categories, like in terms of specific foods, what, what are some of the main offenders that we're consuming regularly? Well, it, if you don't have IBS, then none of these are a problem for you. Yes. But if you have IBS, the whole idea of the diet, so I'll give you just a little history. I won't go too long, but a little history is a, a dietitian in Australia saw was seeing a bunch of GI patients and they would 
she, you know, we take these diet histories and they would basically tell her similar things every time. So she started to research these foods that, that kept giving them problems, these patients, these problems and realizing that if you could take them out or limit them, then they worked, but it wasn't one particular category. It kind of was all of them and then adding back slowly. So she actually developed it. Monash University put this together. And then in here in the States, we've adopted it as well. And I think that FODMAP diet is being used all over. The key point with the FODMAP diet, two things. Number one, one of the O's, one of the oligosaccharides is foods containing wheat, rye, or barley. Now, that's exactly what I just told my celiac patient to avoid. So if we don't know you have celiac disease, but you've gone ahead and used the low FODMAP diet, then we really, we won't know if you have celiac disease or not until with the low FODMAP diet, you eliminate first and then you add these foods back to see what your tolerance is. So if at all possible, Getting the uh, tested for celiac disease, that's really paramount, in my opinion. I do, patients come to me, they say, okay, well, I've already eliminated dairy and gluten. Well, no. So let me just say, with the FODMAP diet, the oligosaccharides, those are things which I just mentioned, wheat, rye, and barley. But there's some other things like coconut uh, flour can be a part of that. Well, if you were following gluten-free, coconut flour works perfect. So you're like, why is my, why aren't my symptoms going away? Beans fit in this category. And so vegetarians and vegans, we have to work hard to get them, help them to understand these things. Peas fit in this category. So, I mean, in my opinion, it'd be fine. I could leave peas forever. So, <laughs> but so those are the oligosaccharides in the, then we have not dairy. It's not dairy. It is lactose, which is the problem. So dairy kind of is a, a big umbrella when people say no dairy, but what they're really meaning is limit the, in the low FODMAP diet is limiting the lactose in food. So that's like milk, cottage cheese, buttermilk, and so those are high lactose containing foods. Cheese, hard cheeses are low lactose foods. So if you said cut out dairy, you'd cut out cheese, then you'd cut out a big, good source of protein and calcium. So that's, uh, that's that um, fructose. Yeah, and so some fruits, but not all fruits. That's why it gets so crazy and they need a dietitian. And then these sugar alcohols, I hate to say it, but I always thought, oh, those are the added sugars like the xylitol and the sorbitol. Except for foods have these two, like mushrooms and peaches and pears. So I think you probably are thinking right now the same thing. This is a hard diet. And the next point is, but I, if I find a dietitian who knows how to do it, then I'll be successful. And that is why there... I think that the dietitian is really needed and it needs to be somebody who's done this for a while. Going to a lecture or doing training is one thing, but working through it is another. So we have the diet is they eliminate for two to four weeks. 
and then we slowly but surely methodically have them add back foods, usually by category. And then they figure out what foods bother them and what foods they can have and how much. Another one I forgot to mention in the oligosaccharides, oh my gosh, the killer, garlic and onion. Those are high. So we have to figure out a substitute for those. Texas, watermelon. I do okay in the winter, but as soon as April, May start coming and I tell my patients watermelon has is higher in FODMAPs, they just start to phase out. So I have to give them substitutes. But it works really well. The low FODMAP diet, when done with a dietitian who can help you ex understand the diet alternatives and then make sure you get adequate fiber, and adequate calcium, it's about 75 to 80% symptom management. So it, you can't find a medication that'll give you 75 to 80% effectiveness. No, I think I think for anyone struggling, they would take that in a heartbeat. And, and you do need help because it is complicated. You're talking about sugar alcohols, you're talking about coconut flour. So if I'm keto or low carb, it's like, oh, wait, what am I going to do here? Or if I'm plant-based or vegan, wait, I can't have beans, I can't have garlic, I can't have onions. And it's restrictive, but if you're suffering, it's a way out. And we'll figure it out. So you're vegan. We know we got to give you some tempeh. We got to work on these other protein supplement substitutes. We'll find the right kind of tofu for you. One of my good friends who's a GI dietitian is a vegan and, and she posts her food all the time. And I'm thinking, wow, you make this look fabulous. So that you, we can, we just need to work with you. But can you imagine if you didn't see somebody and all you saw is, well, there's the five foods that I eat and I can't have them. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to this bigger question of in 2021, I think we, we live in a place with regards to nutrition philosophy where you've got a lot of people who buy into certain camps and it's, an, and it's a specific way of eating and I eat this and only this or I eat that or I never touch that. And I think there's a, I, I don't know what science says about this today. I'm curious your thoughts, but you start to exclude food groups. You talk about the microbiome and GI, and you set your gut up for one type of environment when you start restricting entire food groups. That's ultimately not good for diversity in the microbiome. But what's your take on that? Well, the microbiome is the hottest thing known to man. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, we've always had a microbiome. It's, it's not new. It didn't just show up. We've had a microbiome for a long time. My, my favorite comment is when I see somebody that says eating this affects your microbiome. I'm like, everything affects your microbiome, even the weather. We've, we've, Texas has had something floating around. It's very pretty, but when it floats around, so allergens affect your micro. I mean, the microbiome is, it's always been there and it's always been affected. We are learning more about it. And it, and you're right. Having a, wide variety of foods gives more diversity in the microbiome. But even more so, if you leave out a food group, you leave out a nutrient group. So B vitamins are in whole grain products, also fiber. So you don't eat bread anymore, throw some of that in. You don't have to eat a loaf, but but you can have some of everything. Leaving out dairy, oh my gosh, 
That one worries me so much because leaving out dairy is calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, protein. So, I mean, if you have an, a true allergy or sensitivity to this, like if you have a whey allergy or a casein allergy, we can certainly plan a diet for you. But just doing it because you think, hey, I'm going to do this. I, I think your point was well made. It's like, I saw it on the internet, so I thought I'd do it. And you can almost do anything for a short period of time, by the way. We have right. these most resilient bodies. <laughs> so, and you can have foods you don't like. I mean, I must admit, admit, beets are just not my thing. But sometimes I eat them because they're already in a salad. And yeah. But, so you can have foods you don't like, but... So, so you mentioned fiber and we don't consume enough fiber. We're definitely running short on fiber in America. And so how do you approach fiber with your clients and any recommendations you can make with certain sources of prebiotic fiber for people who just don't get enough fiber? You know what? I just want people to have fiber and I don't want them to worry about the buzzwords of prebiotic and and fiber because prebiotic is fiber that it is found in a lot of the foods. Now, one of the big prebiotic fibers is inulin. And that's ooh, bad, bad for our FODMAP patients. Fructooligosaccharides, these FOSs are also prebiotics, but they can be bad for a, a patient who has IBS. So, so it's a balance. But I think fiber, I would love, I see why the five, remember the five a day fruits and vegetables? I get it. The reason why that's so important, I mean, fiber. It, it, I think people sometimes buy that whole grain bread that has the fiber on top. Well, you just should eat all the top then. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that's really, there's so many foods that you can do, fruits and vegetables, oat bran, oatmeal, rice. Probably not the brown rice. There's wheat, whole wheat pasta. I mean, so we beans, and even at like a quarter cup of beans, just throw it on something. That'll give you some fiber. So I think there's. I think I, I would say fiber is something that is not very high in calories, but it's something we miss. So I, I would my my recommendation to people is start with the five a day of fruits and vegetables if you can. And so for most people that's gonna be two a day and then three a day. <laughs> but it's hard to to do if you're not kind of paying attention. And then once you start paying attention, you're like, oh, I got that. Drink plenty of water to go with that. You can do it. There's supplements. I like supplements for fiber. There's some great fiber supplements that are out there. And so if we're not, if you're not getting what you need, that's always a consideration, but it's in the food. So you mentioned supplements. I'm curious with regards to the microbiome, probiotics, are there specific strains that, in your opinion, that you have published science that are targeted to support a healthy gut? So the answer, so my answer to that is no. Eating a variety of foods will target your microbiome. So there isn't, there isn't anything. There's been several reviews specifically looking for where probiotics can be a benefit. And there's very few places where 
a specific probiotic can be of specific help because the microbiome, if there's one thing it is, it is dynamic. So what you ate yesterday is going to change into what you eat today. I know people are doing some of these stool samples and finding out what's in their, their stool so they can put back the right bacteria. Well, did you know a whole, like 50% or more is in the lining of the GI tract. So we didn't get that micro, those organisms that are there. So we, it's just, there's no good way to know today what organisms will benefit you other than eating a wide variety of foods in your diet. Now, with that said, if somebody who is normal would like to try a probiotic, fine by me. You certainly can. What I recommend, if you really want to do that, and I don't recommend them and I don't think they're necessary, but if you want to, because people may want to and just try it out, get one that is diverse so it has lots of different um, strains in it and try to get one that has at least 10 million colony forming units. Sounds like a lot, but it's, it'll still be a small billion, tablet or billion, right? yes. 10 billion, billion, 10 billion, 10 billion. Yeah. I know it's a great thing to say colony forming units. It'll say so on the, the box, by the way. So that's, it's not hard to do. And then if you take it for four weeks and you say, I didn't notice any difference, then it's optional. If you take it for four weeks and you feel like, I don't know, I kind of felt like my bowel movements were better or I feel a little better, fine by me. There's just, for me to try to find good data or any data that would say for you, we'll do this test and then we'll tell you exactly what you need back. It's not there. And if somebody tries to sell you a test and tell you it is, it's not. Yeah, the stool testing, in my opinion, is interesting, but it's very primitive. Well, be sure, and if you're going to have stool testing, you need to have it every day. Who wants to? I don't want to sign up for that, do you? <laughs> I don't think anyone does. I mean, it's going to change <laughs> by what you ate. So on that, we talked about FODMAPs. I'm going to come back to, are there other common gut offenders, if you will, that you're seeing in addition to FODMAPs? What, what do I, I think? Overconsumption of, of sugar, people overconsuming really salty foods, sort of, sort of the addiction to like the, the junk food aisle. But what's your take on other like gut offenders? It, it, if we could only narrow it down to what they are. So I would say spoiled foods are bad for the gut. <laughs> So if you like to leave your turkey out all day long on Thanksgiving and then eat it the next day, don't do that. But, but I think in general, the, the key word, what you said is so important, overconsumption. So you can have some salt, you can have some sugar, you can have a soft drink occasionally. There's no food that, that is inherently bad as an occasional thing. It's just, I, you, you said the word, it's so right, overconsumption. And I, I think we may have kind of forgotten that it's okay to be hungry in between meals. 
Yeah. <laughs> but you don't need a snack just because I, cause I'm a little hungry right now, but I can wait till lunch. <laughs> but I, I think that's it. So I, I guess as a gut offender, you know what a, another gut offender is? Inactivity. The GI tract really likes to move. So it likes you to at least walk around the block, two blocks if you can. So I think that's another thing that we sometimes forget about. The GI tract likes vitamin D, so it likes you to go out when it's sunny. Vitamin D supplements are available. You don't need a whole bunch, but vitamin D is an easy supplement to take. Thousand I use, some people take more. But vitamin D is a, a good thing to take or to eat when it's supplemented in your food. Sunshine, I know that's a little controversial because we have to be careful. But those are things that the gut likes a lot. What, what about this idea of the gut taking a rest? Uh, a lot of people swear by intermittent fasting or intermittent eating. What's your take on that? My take on that is my favorite intermittent fast is stopping to eat after stopping your food intake after dinner and not eating again or taking a small snack before dinner, before bedtime, depending on what your situation might be. Some people might be might have blood glucose control issues, so they might need a little snack. But I, I think intermittent fasting has been become sort of an interest, I think because we're exposed to food all day long and we can get food anytime we want. So if intermittent fasting teaches somebody to eat in more prescribed hours, that's okay with me. I think every other day fasting is a big problem because protein turnover is, is important and to not give the body protein and energy every day. I mean, we don't do that in normal everyday life. And so I think that can really affect protein turnover, can cause some muscle breakdown that we don't want to have happen. And so you can't double up the next day. Another thing that I have seen in the literature is the intermittent fasting. There's a little bit of information on, let's see, restricted time eating or something like that. I can't remember. It's kind of intermittent fasting, but it just may be a different name for it. But no no real, no calorie suggestion, just, okay, eat from eight to seven and then stop at seven or eight or whatever. So it's like an overnight yeah. 13 hour fast. Yeah. 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 Sundown. Yeah. Or I, I mean, if you go to bed at 10 and you finish by seven, that's only about three hours. And if you have any problem with GERD or those kind of things, then we usually say at least three to four hours. So I kind of think, I don't think it's fasting. I think it's maybe just thinking about that you could be satisfied and maybe see what hunger or hunger, not, we'll never feel real hunger. So just get a little hungry. So I'm curious with regards to food, what, what are your staples? Like when you go shopping, what are your must-haves in terms of fruits, vegetables? Like for you personally, what what does that look like? That are you, we, we were to open your cupboard, go in your fridge, we would always find these foods. You would always find for me yogurt because that is my snack. It's I, you know, I don't do that as a meal, but you'd always find yogurt. You'll always find strawberries. I just, I'm crazy about strawberries. 
you'll find raspberries. And if I remember to eat them the day I got them, then they'll be delicious. But after that, raspberries are such a problem. You will find pasta. I like pasta. And so I'll have all different kinds of pastas, probably cherry tomatoes. I love to put them in the oven, broil them, let them explode, and then throw them on some pasta. Oh, that's so good. Chicken. Um, and what you will find in my cupboard is there will be chips. What type of chips? <laughs> and, well, I got I could be an advertisement for this one new pretzel that's a honey mustard pretzel that is just great. I forgot what the name of it is. She developed it here, I think, in Texas. Oh, my gosh, those are so good. And then... I always have these crackers that are so good because I we a lot of times we'll do cheese and crackers. So you're going to find a lot of cheese in in my fridge. And then, of course, you'll find a little Chardonnay or Cabernet in there as well on the cabinet. But yeah, so a, a wide variety of foods. I, I think what I would love is if we could go to the store on a regular basis like they do in Europe and they go and get their food and they cook it that night. That would be so fun. But so right now I have some broccoli that probably isn't very good, <laughs> but I try to keep it in there. Well, it, it's actually one of the reasons why I love frozen vegetables and frozen fruits. Yes. I put them in a smoothie. They don't spoil. They're actually reasonable. And that, that's how I make sure I get my vegetables. Because you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned raspberries. I love raspberries, but it's the reason why I don't buy them. They spoil so quickly. I get them frozen they all the time. Do. Yeah. They do. I, I, yeah, I have. Yeah, they're my favorite. But I love frozen fruit. And we just during quarantine, we started keeping the frozen vegetables. And I was surprised. And one thing I can tell you about frozen vegetables, excuse me, is that they are so fresh, frozen and canned. They're so fresh. I mean, they're picked, they're washed, they're put in cans, they're picked, they're washed, they're put, they're frozen immediately. They're probably better than picked, washed, brought to a place where then they're distributed to our grocery stores. I mean, I, I think probably that's better than some of the fresh, unless you can go to a farmer's market or whatever. So so one, one group you haven't mentioned, I'm curious your take. You live in Texas after all, barbecue. Uh, yeah. Arguably the barbecue capital, red meat. And how does red meat relate? You talk about red meat with regards to, you know, the gut. Oh, so red meat is lean red meat can be a part of a good diet. I'm a Texan, so we're probably going to have lean red meat at least once a week. And also because the weather is not mostly nice, we can grill and we grill a lot. So I actually have no problem with red meat. I comes to mind some different studies that have been correlation studies, but none of them have been causation studies for these, for some of the GI issues that we've spoken about. So I think that is a very good point. And thank you for allowing me to remember to say that is correlation is not causation. So I, I years ago, they had a, a thing with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and it was called All Foods Fit. 
and it, I really think that's so true is that it oftentimes it's portion size, it's preparation method, it's type of food. You may want to have some Kobe beef every once in a while because it is killer. But if you do that all the time, you might want to check with your cardiologist. But again, and then some people have no problem with any of that. And then I see my skinny people who have challenges and it's so it's hard to know. But I think just including that the amino acid profile is great. I forgot to mention eggs. We love eggs too. Eggs are a great thing. And with the low FODMAP diet, meat, fish, poultry, eggs, oils, none of them are FODMAP containing because none of them have these carbohydrate components. So for anyone who's not an RD or an MD, and I'm going to butcher the words, can you explain what enteral and parenteral feeding techniques are when they might be, I I butchered the words. You did, but that's okay. Uh, That means you're not using enteral or parenteral nutrition, and that's a good thing. So enteral nutrition is another word for feeding tube. So this is when there's a difficulty with swallowing or the esophagus or the stomach. So a tube can go into the stomach or it can go into the small intestine and we formulate a liquid food. It can be food that has been blenderized and strained, or it can be a commercial formula. In that case, the GI tract has to work. In patients where the GI tract doesn't work, or part of it is missing because of resections or maybe a birth defect, whatever that may be, then that is parenteral nutrition. And that is given, that is intravenous nutrition. So people are fed via an intravenous line that goes into goes through the superior vena cava and actually provides IV nutrition. So protein is broken down to liquid amino acids, carbohydrates are liquid dextrose, and fat is intravenous lipid emulsion. So they get the food, they get the nutrients, they're just in a different form. We add vitamins, trace elements, electrolytes. It's pretty rare. You won't see that, but I have patients that I um, deal with in my practice that have been receiving parenteral nutrition as their way to get nutrition for 30 or 40 years. So wow. it is it is an option and it's a lifesaver. It, it is rare. And, and we don't really talk a lot about extreme circumstances like that on the show or hospital settings, yeah. if you will. And so I, 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 we're going to stay in the hospital setting because you're famous for this, you developed the Ireton-Jones equations that RDs and MDs use throughout the world to calculate energy requirements in in patients. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Um, So it was developed when I was in the hospital working in critical care trauma and burns. I found that there were no good equations to figure out how many calories these people need. And so I asked the doctor that I worked with, is there a way we could actually figure out how many calories they need? And he said, yeah, measure their metabolic rate using indirect calorimetry. And then he left me. Okay, uh, what is that? So I figured out what that was. And so it's just the process of measuring the respiratory gas exchange. So 
when somebody, they, we consume oxygen in every energy producing reaction and we produce CO2, we, we all know about that. But if I can quantify that oxygen consumption and CO2 production, then I can know how many calories somebody needs. So they have these machines called indirect calorimeters and you just put it to the bedside of your patient. They either use a mask over their nose and mouth and I collect the, their expired oxygen to know how much, they, how much oxygen they've actually taken in, how much CO2 they've actually expired from just normal breathing or breathing on a breathing machine called a ventilator. So I, I moved this machine around to about 200 patients and I knew how many calories they needed. And so, because that gives you that number calories per day. And so I compared it to height, weight, age, sex, presence of obesity, presence of burns, presence of trauma, and then any of those that correlated using, here's a big word, multivariate regression analysis. I knew what that was a few years ago. Don't ask me anymore. But we made up this equation and then I tested that prospectively in a hundred more patients. So yes, that equation was developed by me, and I actually did not ever expect it to have my name, but I was the first author, author on the paper when it was presented because it was my PhD dissertation. And so that's it, and it's been used <laughs> nationally and internationally, and I appreciate it. And I mostly I love the fact that when a student comes to work with me or, or an intern or I'm at a meeting, they think, she's alive. <laughs> They figure I must be dead. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as young as I used to be, but still here. <laughs> so you mentioned oxygen and we talked about a hospital setting and I can't yeah. help think of COVID and a renewed focus, if you will, on our immune systems and immune resilience. And there's the gut and the role the gut plays and gut health. So can you talk a little bit about the role of our gut? the health of our gut, and the connection with our immune system and, and building immune resilience? Well, that that is an interesting point because the gut has, that's just a, a normal part of the gut is to, it can be a barrier. It, it can, it, but the overall bottom line is it, it is as good as what it gets. And that really starts with what we eat. And so that is, that's the variety of foods. I think you hit it with not the overconsumption of foods that don't, that aren't nutrient dense. I mean, okay, have your treat every once in a while, but really think about when you're eating food, what are you bringing to the table? Are you having fruits and vegetables, whether they're fresh or frozen, as we talked about, or canned? Are you having good protein sources? You don't have to have the good protein source. doesn't have to be a steak. It could be a lean red meat. It could be chicken. It could be tofu. It could be beans. But you're having a protein. Are you having... Can it, can it be an Impossible or Beyond Burger? If you like that, absolutely <laughs> it can. It can. I always wonder why they call, if it's not a burger, why do they call it a burger? It's a, it, it's a patty. 
Isn't that funny? It's a good question. You know, it, it, look, I, I think my take for what it's worth, I think they're fun. I, I think they taste good. If you've got cardiovascular disease and you can't have red meat, it's probably a good op- option. But I, I think it's just, it's highly processed junk. Isn't junk. that funny? That's my take. I'm not the dietitian, but no, no. I think that's a. I think that's quite a good comment. And red meat, lean red meat, it's a good source of amino acids. So if you have cardiovascular disease, you can have red meat. You're not limited. It's not every day. Not, <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, right. Not every day. I mean, who wants to have anything every day? Right. Except for my husband and his frosted flakes that he has every day. And you know, you got to eat. <sighs> Some things alone. It's with good milk, which is a protein calcium source. So Frosted Flakes it is. I just, you know. Well, you've been married for a while, so I'm sure you. <laughs> it's working. I, it's, it's working. You know, the, we, we have our things. So, yeah. But so that's what I would say. One thing that I'm so glad you mentioned COVID in the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital during the COVID times. Oh, my gosh. I went to a meeting in March. What dietitians did to feed patients who were critically ill with COVID in the hospital has not been advertised to the level it should have been. These dietitians had to figure out how to feed patients that were getting that tube feeding that were in a prone position. That's not normal. They figured out how to do that, how to place tubes in these COVID patients. How For a while, I think we weren't sure what to do, so we delayed feeding. So dietitians got in there, don't delay feeding. If the gut isn't working for now, let's get that IV nutrition, the parenteral going. I heard, I cannot tell you how impressed I was with the dietitians working in critical care and in the hospitals and just anywhere where they were getting food to patients who were COVID patients. So, I mean, I I had a very busy COVID time doing Zoom meetings with my GI patients. And I know it was a very stressful time, which can exacerbate IBS. So I was happy to be there. But I have a profound respect for the dietitians who were in the hospitals and they're all over the world was hearing from dietitians in the United Kingdom. Now my colleagues in Brazil, it's pretty amazing because our physicians were working hard. Our nurses were working hard and our dietitians were working hard to get the nutrition to these patients. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. They should be applauded being on the front lines and knock on wood. I think we're on on the other side of it. Finally, my last question for you, it's it's 2021. I'm an optimist. Uh, A lot of exciting science research being done. I'm I'm curious, what are you paying attention to in the world of nutrition? And what do you think is interesting? What do you think we're going to be talking about a, a year or so from now? Well, You've hit the. You've hit me in my place because I get very interested in a topic, then I seem to move on to another topic. So I do like to kind of learn something new. Um, so what is new? I think there's a couple of things that are new or will be helpful as we go forward. One is a, a continued 
interest in food and and people I think people cooked a lot. I know I did. And so I think I think there may be more interest in food and how you can prepare food and then how that preparation of food can affect, like you said, cardiovascular disease, IBS, etc. And so I think there's going to be more discoveries in food and components in food. But the bottom line is it's food. And so I think that to me, when I have worked with my patients in the hospital and I could give them a feeding tube or give them IV nutrition, it's like, okay, done. But when somebody says, what can I eat? Because I have this symptom or that symptom, or I need to gain weight, or I, that's, they want to know about food and it can be complex. Also, I know you, you called it, I know about Texas food. But I may not know about my best friend's Indian food or my husband's from Michigan. They, we had to come to an agreement on certain things. He was not sure black-eyed peas were edible food. And so we learned there's different things across. And with such a melting pot that the U.S. is and more acceptance of that, there's so many different foods. So... I don't know what I'm going to be recommending in 2022, but stay tuned. I'm looking forward to what the new foods are and, and how we can help people feel better. But, but I, I would like to just say one last thing before we go. If somebody has made you fearful of food, if you're concerned about an unsafe food supply or unsafe foods or these foods are so bad for me or I have to eat a certain kind of food, please reach out to a reputable source. I think registered dietitians can be those. But again, we have a wide variety of dietitians, so they're not all of the same level. But it, when it, it so upsets me when I hear somebody that says, oh, I can't eat that. <laughs> That's bad. Or I I uh, only organic or, oh, no, no GMO foods. Really get the facts. Get the facts from a reputable source. Weigh it yourself. But I, I, with my GI patients and the pain that they have, many times they come with food fears and somebody has told them something or you're sensitive to these 400 foods. Get a, see an expert. I guess that's it because food should be fun and happy. You told me you're coming to eat barbecue. I mean, you're probably tasting it right now, aren't you? <laughs> I, I, I am. Although I don't eat barbecue. I don't eat. I, I, my, there's a history of cardiovascular issues in my family and I'm in my, I'm 46 now. So I don't eat as much red meat as I used to. So I probably have it like a couple times a quarter. But when I do, I, I make it count. Um, there you go. <laughs> and I think it's this idea with regards to food and philosophy is it's operating from a place of abundance and not scarcity. And so I'll give a real world example, which I've mentioned before on this show. It's I like the word treat and not cheat. And so it's a mindset shift. Am I enjoying this or am I feeling guilty about the, about this? And I get look for some people, as you know, I'm sure you have patients who really have serious 
autoimmune or allergies, they just really can't have something. They, they really can't. Right. But for most people, you probably can have everything, but you know, you probably shouldn't have a donut every single day. Probably not a good idea. But if you're going to have a donut every once in a while, make sure it's good. Enjoy it. Make sure it's a really good donut. I love that. And it's not a treat. It's not fun anymore if it's an everyday thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of my friends that is, that's his philosophy is make, have that, but make it a treat, make it a special occasion. I, I, I think it'd be great if people just thought fruits and vegetables were boring that I had every day. Yay. <laughs> what my treat is like a, a, a donut or that gelato or I don't know what everybody's treat is, but yeah, that's, I fully endorse that. <laughs> well, Carol, thank you so much. Uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Sure. Thank you.